and welcome to the Switchboard podcast. Switchboard is a one-stop resource hub for refugee service providers in the United States. With the support of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, Switchboard offers resources, learning opportunities, research, and technical assistance on resettlement-related topics. My name is Kay Ballore, and I'm a subject matter expert working with Switchboard to host this podcast series on the topic of leading during a transition. I've worked on refugee, asylee, and unaccompanied children's issues and programs for almost 40 years. And so I'm excited to be speaking to some great leaders for today's refugee service world. Today, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Haider Alkenfer. Uh, Dr. Alkenfer is an internationally trained internist and public health physician. He is currently serving as the director of the TB Control and Refugee Health Program the Utah State TB Controller and Refugee Health Coordinator at the Utah Department of Health. Dr. Alkenfer received his medical degree and his internal medical training at Alexandria University in Egypt and a clinical neuropathology fellowship and Master of Public Health at the University of Utah. So just to say again how happy I am that, that Heider's agreed to join us and, and talk about um, his work with, the, uh, with refugee health, but, but more broadly with um, how, how players um, at the Utah state level have, have confronted and, and overcome uh, some of the challenges that, that we know about for the last several years. So Heider, the first question is, has to do with um, the toughest leadership challenge you faced over the last several years, and and what can you say prepared you best to lead uh, through that challenge? Um, all right. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for the introduction, and uh, thank you so much for having me today. I think um, if I were to categorize, um, you know, some of these um, challenges that we have faced over the years. I would put them as uh, maybe the first category, like a, like a regular um, challenges that we see in, in refugee health um, and maybe some specific to our program, some specific challenges to our program um, and uh, COVID challenges, of course. Um, I think uh, the regular challenges that, you know, uh, pretty much every um, refugee um, service program um, are facing is, you know, the, the fluctuation of refugee arrivals. So as you guys know, you know, um, and with changes of administration uh, from year to year, uh, we're, we're not 100% sure of how many new arrivals are coming. Um, and that impacts the um, resources that we have, the fund that we get. Um, and and um, this has been one of the most constant challenge that we um, kind of, you know, uh, deal with um, every year um, to, to start, um, you know, to kind of plan our uh, next year activities and our next year capacity. Um, and then on top of that, for sure, the COVID um, impact. I think um, COVID in Utah had really interesting course over the last year. It, it, first, um, refugee communities were very hard hit by um, COVID. Um, as the rest of the underserved uh, or um, minority population in, in Utah. And, you know, at that time, uh, we were ready with some data matching systems. Um, so this was one of the 
uh, best thing that we did very early in the in the response to this pandemic. So we started matching our data systems and um, and we started identifying uh, the COVID cases among refugees. So I think yeah that that kind of like um, summarized the uh, the challenges that we we have. Yeah. Oh, I can I can imagine, and we're definitely going to touch on that more in detail um, later as as we speak. But you've given me a lot of, of ideas on how to add to my questions. For you, as uh, personally though, as as a leader, um, that's a lot to take on, right? And so I'm wondering, what were the things that that guided you in in what must have felt like day by day, hour by hour, yet another challenge. And, and as the, the coordinator, you must have had demands that, that were unique to your role, right? And so um, would love to hear kind of <laughs> what you told yourself when you walked out the door that, <laughs> in the morning about, okay, here's, here's how I'm going to face the challenges today as, as the coordinator, as the leader. I'd love to hear what went through your mind. Ah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the first thing that came to my mind is, um, you know, in our state system, and I think in most state systems, state surveillance, disease surveillance systems, I mean, uh, we don't flag refugees or flag cases as refugees. So, um, so there wasn't an easy way to know as the state uh, started reporting, uh, you know, number of COVID cases. Uh, we knew that this was coming and this was going to, you know, infiltrate our community and we wanted to um, get the data. And as a data-driven public health professional, this was the first thing that came to my mind is how, how to best identify COVID cases in, in our refugee communities, because not only that would allow us to, you know, look at the data and, and, and make recommendations uh, on, on, you know, best practices and how to respond, uh, but also on an individual level that allowed us to, um, you know, work with cases. And we played a very, um, in my opinion, a very important role uh, being, um, you know, part of the state health department um, is that we were um, the state health department in general were supporting the local health departments, right? And we took that role with the refugee community. So we started actually started doing um, cases investigation uh, for refugees. So we designated uh, but between one and two case investigators um, as a local health department um, support. And we were, um, you know, the fact that we were able to identify these cases, we knew even before calling them, because in the first few weeks of the pandemic, um, you know, the public health nurses at the local health department sometimes would call a case. They didn't know that they were refugee. They had, you know, communication issues or linguistic barriers. So uh, they would reach out to us and be like, do you know if this um, case is a refugee? So once we put that data matching system, we really didn't depend on them. We identified the cases and we told them upfront, hey, these are the cases that our cases investigators would work on. So we started calling the cases and as you know, we have this expertise in our uh, program, we knew how to connect cases to the available resources to refugees then then this is uh, kind of like, you know, again, the main, uh, just to go back without digging in the, in the details, um, the main thing that I was thinking about is identify this, you know, key data sources that we can collect um, information and then 
um, have plans in um, have plans ready on how to use the data, whether it's for analysis purposes or for individual level, um, you know, service providing purposes. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about is uh, we needed to uh, not only involve um, others in our work. Uh, so we started actually leading uh, within the state health department as an entity working with uh, minority population. And uh, we were a very good example and a nucleus to start a vulnerable group committee that were expanding our efforts um, outside the refugee community. So not necessarily only refugee community that we were focusing on, but also that you know, vulnerable work group uh, Started dealing, started working with um, all the um, underserved uh, minority, and and um, to be honest, I think uh, we're lucky here in Utah because uh, we have a very well established public health and and refugee specific um, infrastructure um, that allowed us to be a step or a couple steps ahead of the other um, uh, groups that were working with other vulnerable population. So we were kind of like, you know, leading this effort in general. Um, and whatever we were implementing in the refugee community, it was kind of like, you know, replicate, we helped replicating that um, in, in these other groups working with other vulnerable population, you know, maybe within a few weeks, uh, just to kind of show them how we did it, what approaches we, we we took and they uh, followed our steps. So that was the other thing is involving pretty much, you know, state um, um, programs, um, involving refugee health uh, 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 resettlement agencies, um, involving, um, you know, the refugee services office um, here in Utah, um, and also involving um, the community. This is one of the things that I am very proud of. Um, we started organizing um, community listening session and community work groups with different nationalities and um, different um, ethnicity groups, um, you know, organizing a um, interpreter to be present. Uh, we did them via Zoom. Um, I was so happy to see a lot of the faces of our communities, um, you know, community leaders that are very familiar and other people who were, um, you know, um, either joining from their phone, from their workplace uh, to listen uh, to updates that we were doing and also to answer some of the questions. This is wonderful. Yeah, I think, you know, these two elements, like technically identifying key sources of data that, that we can base our best practices on and then involving everyone in the community. And when I say everyone, I tech literally, literally mean everyone. Yeah. Wow. There's so much great stuff in there. Um, and I, and I love the way, you know, particularly those two important pillars of, of the science and the data. Um, but then my next question was actually going to be around communication and you pulled in the importance of, of affected populations, right? And, and how, how that too often is the missing link. Um, you know, I talk to people all the time and, and that's often their biggest regret where they know, they know that it's important to do, but something always seems to get in the way. So really exciting to hear um, that that was, that was as important as the technical response. But if we could dig a little bit more, you know, you obviously heard, you went after the information and you heard a lot um, from the refugee community. 
could you speak a little bit about any of those disparities or, or you know, we hear a lot about inequities in terms of health access and, and maybe talk a little bit about, while you might not have been surprised at it, how you saw COVID maybe disproportionately affecting those communities that, that you normally would serve. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that, that was actually one of the um, first thing that we noticed. And as I mentioned, um, we have our uh, situational report that we report back to the community and to the partners that we work with. And one of the interesting thing is that, you know, we compare our um, graphs and our uh, case rates to the state case rates. And, and one of the very interesting things is that you can see that, that you know, the, the infiltration of COVID in our community was very interesting because once we have a few families uh, or, you know, a, a smaller community uh, infected that because of the relatively smaller number, we have a spike and then we will exceed, you know, at least, uh, you know, the proportion of the state numbers and then we will drop back and be slightly lower than the state numbers, then we will exceed it again. And it was, uh, you know, very interesting to see how just a few cases can affect our numbers, because one of the main things that we noticed is that once we have, uh, and that was very early in the pandemic, once we had one positive COVID case, the rest of the family members will be infected. And as you know, most of refugees were um, having significantly higher numbers of, of household members within one household, this, this numbers grew significantly higher. Like you have few cases and then their families, maybe a family of eight or 10, will follow in the next two, three days. So we focused on this by focusing our messaging around how to protect yourself uh, when you have a COVID case at home. Um, you know, all the, uh, again, national and state uh, resources, we utilized those and we, we formulated our own resources as well. We translated those, we focused our messaging, all these, you know, community group training that I was talking about. Uh, we really focused on this and we, I, that was, you know, one of the, one of the very satisfying moment to see the quick impact of these trainings happening. And, and we started seeing a very significant drop when we have one active case and the, you know, maybe the rest of their household members were not being infected and that dropped our numbers again, in a very satisfying way to see that, you know, how quick easy, you know, relatively easy implementation of a, a public health intervention uh, can give you the results in literally like a, a few weeks or months after implementing them. Um, so so uh, to, to go back to your question and how we saw that. So, um, you know, again, as I mentioned, we were working with other state programs, working with other vulnerable groups. We, as we had this matching system and we have our data, um, something that we noticed is that we had a spike early in the in the pandemic. It was way more than um, you know the state um, uh, numbers, um, and I'm talking proportionate here. And that was reflected also in the other uh, vulnerable groups um, in case rates, in positivity rates, um, and in accessing testing. Um, so 
you know, um, as you know, a positivity rate can increase because of multiple factors, one of which can be um, high transmission rate in the community. Um, but it can also be because, um, you know, of uh, lower, relatively lower numbers of total testing that you're doing. So um, we were having this issue. And I think, in my opinion, the interpretation of our data is that at that time, um, refugees and other vulnerable groups uh, very early in the pandemic um, had both high transmission in the community and also low number of testing that were um, you know, available um, and accessed by, by these uh, populations. So, so we worked on um, you know, having um, easy access to testing uh, to these population um, and, and working as uh, a state entity and working with, you know, again, other uh, vulnerable groups um, and specifically with Salt Lake County. Salt Lake County is where most of our refugees are. So yeah, that's uh, you know that's kind of like, um, the 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 strategy that we worked on with Salt Lake County. We had multiple um, testing options, and they were amazing to work with. To be honest, um, you know, I think the guidance that the local health department were getting from um, uh, state officials, the governor, and everyone is to focus on vulnerable groups and minority groups because it was obvious to everyone that you know they were disproportionately impacted by 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 uh, covid so we had all the way from mass testing clinics you know where we had just a, a clinic in one location we were sending people to to a mobile clinic that we were sending to uh, specific um, apartment complexes where uh, most of our refugees reside to even home testing. So we were sending teams to, you know, test people at home. We had a few examples of um, parents, working parents, they would get, you know, um, in infected with COVID. Their below 18 kids are symptomatic or being exposed and they need to be tested and they don't have a mean to go to any clinic. So we would send a team to test people um, at home. And also later in the, in the response, uh, we actually get a testing uh, kit. So we were able to get people a testing kit where um, you know, we, we worked with our partners to have people you know, basically just collect these uh, specimens at home and they can just drop it in the in the mail and and we get the results so we have you know this this plethora of testing options thinking that that we need to advertise this because it, it's such a wonderful blueprint um i think just um all of the things that that you're describing in terms of being responsive to the particular needs of of the refugee community so now we're in this somewhat hopeful phase, right? I mean, despite the terrible landmark of, of 500,000 COVID deaths, um, we do know that, that vaccine uptake is, is increasing. And I'd love to hear you talk about any kind of campaign or communications that you're tailoring for the refugee community. What, what if any, you know, fears are you addressing? Um, maybe everybody's all in, right? Right. Like, let me let me get to the front of the line. Um, but we do know that that um, some some communities, communities of color in particular, um, 
you know, have expressed some hesitancy around receiving the vaccine. So, and also knowing that not every group um, is is yet eligible, right? I mean, healthcare workers. Um, so just uh, curious um, yeah, what you're seeing in terms of uh, the vaccine campaign and uptake. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of like a, <laughs> an, an interesting phase of the COVID uh, response. And I think uh, we're, we're, we, we've learned a lot with what happened with testing and testing efforts and people, um, you know, hesitancy with getting tested. Um, and, and most of the challenging aspects were being replicated with, with vaccine, right? Because it's kind of like, you know, following the same um, concept and and for sure we have some level of resistance and um, I think you know I think as you guys know the 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 COVID um, information is moving very rapidly like we're we know more every day you know I'm, I I was just thinking uh, the other day and looking back on February or March of 2020 lots of things have changed lots of information I mean maybe we don't. Um, feel that because they have been dripping you know it's not it didn't come like just in one big update but we've been knowing more and more as we go um, so when when we started this conversation around vaccine um, you know and we had the emergency authorization for the for the uh, vaccine here in the United States we started very early um, and again um, utilizing these communication channels the um, the the um, community group sessions and um, uh, and, and, and multiple um, communication channels and and if I may just talk about the communication channels here for a little bit we we used um, you know beside the the, the community group uh, listening sessions with different population we also used a very good approach, in my opinion, which was recommended to us by our refugee resettlement agencies. Um, very early in the pandemic, we were translating materials, making sure that, you know, uh, we have uh, either electronic or printed flyers ready for um, our population. And, and one of the things that um, our partners suggested is that we need um, audio-visual material. That is a must, and we... Um, think everyone, it was obvious to everyone, um, even, even outside refugee world, you know, even for the mainstream population, the state started, um, you know, showing trusted um, public health officials, uh, sending message to sending messages to the to the public um, about testing, vaccine, vaccine efficacy, vaccine safety, and, and all this information. Um, and and um, one of the things that we did is that we um, in, in the first week, we were um, using these videos of public health officials, you know, our governor, our state epidemiologist with subtitles. And, and we realized that even though they were effective, they were um, a good approach, but it was, in my opinion and, 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 and our partner's opinion, it was a better way to show trusted community leaders, um, you know, giving this message in their own um, culture and, and, and their own, um, you know, uh, words, uh, which, it, 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 you know, I, in my, in, at least I, I speak Arabic and I, I did the Arabic video. And, and in my opinion, you know, it, it's different. You know, when you read the subtitles um, and you see, 
you know, uh, uh, the state epidemiologist and or the governor um, as a refugee member, um, maybe you don't relate to that hundred uh, percent. But when you see a face that you recognize, um, someone who you trust, someone who um, you know that they went through the same experiences um, as you did, and and they are making this decision, and they're not, you know. And I think the way that we presented the information is that we were not forcing this decision on people. We were trying to make sure that all our refugee members are, they do understand the data available and and the evidence available to make their own decision, right? So, I mean, um, it, it, for anyone who is, um, you know, for anyone who had good access to accurate data, in my opinion, the, deci the decision should be easy. But it was the point of, do people know what is happening? Do people have access to the right information? And I can tell you from my um, personal perspective as a community member is that uh, there were a lot of false information circulating around. I took it as a program responsibility to address all these and to make sure that you know people know that this is not based on any factual data. This is not based on any correct information and and we try to present the correct information for people to make their own decision it's just really encouraging i have to say um to to listen to how you apparently you know built a really well well functioning train as you were you know driving it so um so we have I, I, time, I think, for, for one last question, and you touched on this a bit more before we wrap, and that is, um, you know, extraordinary conversation about what you accomplished um, in Utah, and you said a little bit about sort of wanting to reflect kind of from the national um, side down to Utah. I'm curious, because of course, Having worked in resettlement, I'm aware of organizations like SCORE, right, the, the, or the, the state um, health coordinators, and wondering kind of how you saw that platform for sharing promising practices and, and if you felt like you were able to, to take what you were seeing and, you know, relay it outward um, to, to the benefit of others or, you know, for your own benefit in terms of any learnings. Yeah, so, um, you know, as, as a refugee health coordinator um, here in Utah, we, um, I'm a part of the Association of Refugee Health Coordinators, ARC, um, and uh, we meet monthly um, as, a, as a, you know, a, a very a new member to ARC. Um, I was learning a lot. I was learning from the other refugee health coordinators, um, it was very interesting to see the differences um, between, you know, the, the response that other states have. Um, I think, um, again, just uh, because um, of the good established infrastructure here in Utah and the fact that we're um, embedded in the state health department, things were easier for us. Uh, we were, um, you know, um, just uh, a little bit faster than other states to match our refugees to the state surveillance system. Um, than other states that, you know, the refugee health program was outside the state health department. So that connection um, and the, the data mapping was not as easy as we, we had. But we were, you know, kind of like learning how some other states, some centralized states, uh, refugee resettlement states like us, 
were responding and some some decentralized states that have you know refugees arriving to multiple sites on their um, on their states were responding and we were um, kind of like you know um, sharing information I know that uh, one of the resources that we were working on um, we ended up using um, I think one of the state's resources that were shared with us uh, which is technically um, how to, and this is this is the name of the document, which I think uh, we got a lot of positive feedback on, is how to talk to a hesitant refugee about vaccine, you know, kind of like a step-by-step -step guide on how to respond to some of, of the questions that they have. And uh, it really, um, you know, this is something that we were trying to work on, but we found another state that had this. So, so you know, using these and using the CDC and, and uh, CDC materials that were translated, um, using um, the, um, you know, the other um, available resources that we had, you know, as the score and switchboard and, and, and um, all the other uh, available information that we had. And I think, you know, I think the challenge was to strategically use some of the information with and and you know with with the community that you have because because i think you know every community is slightly different so i think uh yeah that's that was kind of like our approach in, in here well that's great and and i think with that we, we will wrap it up i i just wanted to say again how admirable um the response uh was and and i think um you know, you 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 focus so much on on things that others could could definitely learn from in terms of of data. And for me, you know, one thing I've always been passionate about, but honestly, never always one hundred percent succeeded at, was bringing that refugee voice into the conversation um, to ensure the greatest sort of you know communication possible. And so, just really appreciate all that I've learned today. Um, and thank you to listeners who tuned in. Listeners can visit Switchboard online at www.switchboardta.org. And there you'll find online resources, e-learning, a form to request technical assistance, and much more. And if you haven't done so already, please sign up for the Switchboard newsletter and be notified about new resources as they come out. So. Thank you again, Hyder. So glad to meet you virtually. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.